On this week's show, it's all about electrics from the Big Apple as host John McElroy and his panel of EV experts discuss our electric future from the floor of the New York Auto Show. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by Borg Warner. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today's show is going to be all about electric cars. Where's that market going? We're going to learn a lot today because I've got three experts in this field, including Selim Morsi from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, Chelsea Sexton, a longtime and well-known EV advocate, EV being electric vehicle, and John Volker is with Green Car Reports. Great to have the three of you on the show today. Thanks for having us. Salim, let me start with you. You recently came out with a report at Bloomberg New Energy Finance saying the tipping point's coming, the tipping point's coming in 2023-ish. That's when you think that electric car sales are really going to start to take off worldwide. Why do you say that? That's exactly right. Well, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the cost of lithium-ion cells and battery packs generally. They've gone from about $1,000 per kilowatt hour in 2010 on average to less than 350 in 2015. Uh, that has tremendous consequences with regards to the total cost of ownership of these vehicles. We think by 2030, the cost of the battery will be about $120 a kilowatt hour, and that will essentially make the, the, the economics of the EV work much better in terms of a return and payback for drivers, not to mention the kind of functionality and value that customers will derive from it. Chelsea, you see it this way, 2023 being the tipping point, or how do you look at where this is going? I mean, I'm hoping the timing is right, but I think there's a bunch of caveats. You know, vehicles have always been one of the most emotional purchases we will ever make. And we didn't adopt smartphones because they were cheaper than landlines. So pure economics is not gonna be enough to actually move this. We need consistent support, marketing, more automakers engaged in the first place, fewer compliance cars, more real volume programs, or else within 10 years, we're gonna be talking about the second killing of the electric car. John, how about you? I'd agree it's somewhere in there. I'm not sure I'd place a given year on it. But one of the things to remember is battery costs are coming down. But the EPA and the NHTSA have also said that the cost of a conventional vehicle in order to meet the CAFE standards, and there's a separate set of standards for California as well, is going to rise. Now, they said it's going to be about $3,000 in real dollars between 2012 and 2025. What do you mean $3,000 difference in that time? Um, the cost of the average vehicle, which is now around $33,000, $34,000, will rise by $3,000 from 2012 to 2025 just to meet the CAFE requirements. Now, most of the automakers I talk to snort and laugh and say it's going to be double that. On the other hand, automakers are known for crying wolf, so I think the real number is higher than $3,000, but somewhere less than six. I don't see those numbers. But as conventional vehicles get more expensive and as electric cars get less expensive, I tend to believe that at some point, those buyers who buy purely on cost, aside from all of the emotional interest, aside from the convenience of electric cars and those things, the smarter half of the couple who's shopping for a car is going to turn to the less smart half and say, honey, so for that car that you want, you want to add all these options, the leather seat, the sunroof. But for that same amount of money, we could have this one over here that costs a third as much to run, and I never have to go to the gas station. I think that's a better car, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Salima, also in your report, you said you're predicting that when electric cars 
really take off in sales, it could cause another collapse in pr the price of oil. So we don't comment on that, but what we do say is that we think that, you know, we, we think basically by 2040, about 35% of new light duty vehicle sales will be will have a plug, overwhelmingly battery electric vehicles. As a result of that, we think it could displace about 13 million barrels a day out of the market. So 2016 demand is gonna be around upwards of 90, uh, 90 million barrels a day. So it is a sizable chunk of the market, but we don't make any claims as to what that means for prices. All we're saying is that there's a big chunk of the market that could be removed from, you know, in terms of oil demand and replaced with electricity. Oil prices have been low for the last year. Some think it, they're going to go back up again, but still not to crazy levels like we saw uh, a decade ago. What do, what do you guys think? How important is the price of oil, at, the price at the pump particular, in terms of really getting electric car sales going? I mean, if gas is cheap, are people going to buy EVs? So far, we're not seeing, I mean, there's always, always lots of predictions. When gas hits five bucks, people will switch. And there's always been that kind of a construct. But what we're seeing in reality with sales is that hybrid, gasoline-only hybrid sales are very dependent on gas prices. EVs and plug-in hybrids, because they are just a fundamentally different experience, are less connected to gasoline prices. So certainly high gas prices get people to start thinking about them in the first place, but anyone sort of already in that consideration camp isn't moving for or against just because gas gets cheap. The EV is still the better driving, more fun experience to begin with, and that doesn't change. And current EV drivers aren't even paying attention to the price of gas, so they're not even thinking about going back. <laughs> But John, in Europe, for example, it's still roughly $7 a gallon, and EV sales have not really taken off in Europe. Right. On the other hand, the baseline in Europe is different. Their cars are more efficient to start with. Um, their diesel vehicles tend to deliver a 35, 40 mile a gallon experience. And uh, electricity is more expensive in many European countries. But more than that, there has to be a concerted effort between car makers and government entities. And here in the states, we have both the federal government and certain states, California notably, that's, that are really pushing electric vehicles. Thus far, that hasn't so much happened in Europe. Um, and California is really leading this country, which will be the largest electric car market in the world for the next few years, depending on what happens in China. Um, California is really leading the way, but California intends that in 2040, 80 or 90 percent of the cars on their roads will have no tailpipe emissions. Right. And there's a lot of legislation and a lot of fairly major rules to make that happen. That's a big push for electric cars. I'll, I'll add one thing on the oil issue. We're not ignoring the, the, the reality that we're in a low crude oil price, and anyone who's trying to analyze the EV market can't ignore the fact that you're driving at you know, less than two bucks a gallon. Undoubtedly to us, that has an impact. If we stay in a $20 environment, it has an impact on, on adoption. Why? Because you know, we do a total cost of ownership analysis of driving these vehicles. And while consumers do not choose a vehicle based on a spreadsheet and a payback period, uh, it, it is a leading indicator. And certainly having $20 barrels for an indefinite amount of time, we think would delay adoption, but it wouldn't kill it. We just think it would delay it by about five to seven years. One, one of the other themes that we find, is that, especially as I run around towards the middle of the countries, it's not so much gas is cheaper or expensive, it's that it's volatile. And that notion of it could go up a lot tomorrow, may go down, whatever, but the fact that it does this up and down thing is what is off-putting to a lot of consumers, where electricity is cheaper to begin with and incredibly steady. So there's a self-sufficiency factor of not being beholden to oil companies and other countries and various things that really resonates in the U.S. And in terms of vehicle sales here and in Europe, I think one of our persistent issues is a lack of product. 
And by that, I don't mean more leaves, I mean variety. So, you know, California has been very, very supportive and, and they love to, to remind people there's 23 different electric cars or whatever available in California, but there's five or six available nationwide. There's a handful available in Europe. And as long as we don't have very much product variety, total sales will never be that high. I don't care how good a Voltre Leaf or a Model S is, there is no single gas car for everyone. The same is true for electric. So we need the same wide variety of, of body styles, of performance, of vehicle price, prices, all of that, in order to break through this sort of interesting and compelling but relatively low total sales we have today. And just to expand on that, I mean, the most, the fastest growing segment for a while has been crossovers, subcompact and compact, which I think, if I remember the data, are now selling, outselling midsize sedans in this country. Where is the compact crossover that is a plug-in hybrid and affordable, or that is a battery electric. Um, you know, if that's the biggest segment of the market, you've got all, now, we understand why. It's easier because crossovers are larger, heavier, and have more cross-section, so it's harder to give them the range. But still, you know. It's what the public wants. Yeah. And if you're shopping for a crossover, you're not going to look at a small electric sedan, which is not going to happen. And the sales of the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid, yeah. which is available in Europe and not here, underscores all of that. Unfortunately, it's incredibly late coming to this yeah. country. So right now, all you have in that larger vehicle space is a Model S or X, which is, you know, $100,000 or more. I'm sure we'll see more of those models coming, but let's go back to the cost of the energy because we've talked about oil and gasoline prices. What about electricity? You know, all the talk of the country that we've got to rebuild the grid, I, I, I have a hard time believing that electricity prices are not going to go up. So, you know, we, actually we think they're going to be rather steady between 10, cent, 10 and 12 cents a kilowatt hour for the foreseeable future. Our analysis, you know, in our, in our scenario where 35% of new vehicles are EVs globally, 41 million cars a year, uh, that would be the equivalent of 2,700 terawatt hours. So what does that mean? That's about just over 10% of what we project will be global electricity demand. It's not that sizable. The grid is changing. You know, we do a lot of analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance on you know, the penetration of wind and solar. We're not too concerned about the, the impact on the grid that EV demand will have, actually. And utilities are really supportive of electric cars because it's their last bastion of load growth. Absolutely. It's absolutely the last way for them to defensively say, please buy more of our product. So it's not in their best interest to sort of try to turn around and raise electricity prices so much and sort of screw those people that they're desperately trying to attract, plus they're heavily regulated. You know, public utility commissions and stuff, it takes a year or more to change electricity prices. So even if they did still go up a little bit over time, it's going to be very incremental and much longer time frame than we think of with gasoline. But as you all know, there's a big difference between residential electricity sure. prices, which are the 10 to 12 cents you're talking about, selling, and on a commercial side, it can be five, six times that. Sure, but renewables are also adding into that mix and offsetting. We're starting to see areas of the country where the utilities actually want you to plug in in the middle of the day to help soak up the excess solar they have. We're transitioning in general to more real-time pricing, which will help influence behavior on electric cars and everything else. So yeah, a lot of changes to the grid and how we interact with it are coming, but it doesn't necessarily translate to higher prices and certainly not for what we think of as vehicle fuel. Exactly. and just. Extending a little bit on the utility theme, one of the interesting things, utilities have no real way to store energy. And now that we're getting more renewables, wind and solar, it's peaky. Wind comes at night when you don't need a lot of power. One of the things that utilities are all looking at and experimenting with is large bunkers, very carefully climate controlled, of the same battery cells that you use in electric cars. That's kind of a win-win. And the utilities 
are starting to say, okay, maybe we can drive that market. Certainly a lot of battery makers that I talk to see utility energy storage as just as important a market in the near term as uh, electric cars. Yeah. More than that, some of my readers, Green Car Reports has a lot of very passionate readers. <laughs> um, some of my readers are starting to look at not only home solar, but home energy storage. Mm -hmm. Tesla got a lot of attention for introducing a home battery pack, but there were actually a couple of dozen companies that have been doing it for a while. But the whole notion that not only can you run your car on electricity, you can actually generate your fuel or electricity at home, you still stay connected to the grid for the you know those three week rainy periods or what have you, but the notion that you can charge your car at home, never visit a gas station, and essentially get free transport or the fuel will become, I believe, a more compelling one, especially for people in sunnier parts of the country. One of the most commonly asked questions I get from people is, okay, what if electric cars really take off? Can the grid take it? Yeah. We already see brownouts in some parts of the country during the summer when everybody flicks on their air conditioning. Can the grid take it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's I mean, as I said, we think at, at a point where, you know, what I mentioned, 35% of new vehicles are, are, are EVs. For the vehicle stock, that would be between 15 and 20% by 2040. We're only talking about 10%, 10 to 12% increase of demand over that time period. So it's not a shock that's going to the grid. It's something that's incremental, can be planned with distributed generation and storage uh, and basically microgrids emerging as a you know, new viable business model. It's not something that's, that's, in, in any that's a material threat to EV adoption. Yeah, and, in, and in fact, Utilities have all sorts of groups that look at demand growth. You know, what are the new electronic appliances that are coming? And in talking to them, electric cars are going to come in very steadily. They will come in in what used to be called Prius clusters. If you have a cul-de-sac that might have three Priuses out of 12 houses, some of those are going to convert to plug-ins. They need to look at their neighborhood transformers, but in terms of total load on the grid, the transformation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to cheap home air conditioning was far more disruptive hmm. to the electric grid and to electric utilities than electric cars will ever be. That's a great point. Great utilities point. have seen more peaks from plasma TVs alone yeah. than they've seen from electric cars. <laughs> Seriously, six or seven o'clock at night, they see an extra peak in the day from people coming home, turning on their TVs. Wow. Okay, what about coast-to-coast uh, -coast infrastructure, charging infrastructure? It, it seems to me this is one of the advantages that Tesla has in the marketplace. You can go from L.A. to New York, no problem. In fact, you can charge for free along the way. What do you think other automakers are going to have to do? Do you see any action of them coming up with their own infrastructure? Sure. I mean, we all know that customers expect to have some sort of nationwide infrastructure, even if they don't use it all that often. There's absolutely a psychological aspect to public charging. And all of the other automakers and, and charging infrastructure folks are thinking about how do we do this. Audi announced in the LA Auto Show last November that they were going to make sure that there was a nationwide network in place But by the time their first EV unveils or comes out to market in 2018-19. So that's definitely happening. Exactly who pays for what is still being worked out, but the notion that it's coming is already fully accepted. Yeah, and Tesla really laid out a model. It's one of, I think, the things that the company did that people didn't appreciate at the time that really was prescient. This is now the de facto expectation, especially on the expensive side. Why shouldn't I be able to drive my 200 or 280 mile electric car across the country? I'm fine with stopping for 20 or 30 minutes every couple hours. I will plug in the car, use the bathroom, and then spend 18 minutes looking at email on my phone. That's not something you do every day, but it's 
what Tesla has shown as possible. What I find interesting is who is making steps, albeit baby steps right now, and who's not. Yeah. The Germans and Nissan together are the sole forces trying to create DC fast charging networks across this country. The Americans are nowhere. And in fact, General Motors, which is resetting the bar at the end of this year by introducing a 200 mile, $37,500 electric car, has said we are not putting money into fast charging infrastructure. That's not what we do. Right. So I would add one caveat to that, which is, you know, can you make money from an owner operator charging infrastructure the way nope. Tesla does? So yeah, the, the, the evidence is scant. So no, I don't want to sound like a cheerleader for the EV industry. There are certainly issues that need to be overcome. And I think with Tesla, what will be very interesting is to see whether or not they're going to charge their Model 3 users for the supercharger. I think perhaps for the Model X and Model S $100,000 drivers, you can, you can fast charge and use it. But there's already evidence that Tesla has seen that the usage of the supercharger network has far exceeded or at least exceeded their expectations. People are using it when they go to the mall, not when they're driving cross country. And that's putting, you know, demand charge demand charges on the on the on the business and it's not clear that this is sustainable. So well, we'll let's see. be clear, it's not that Tesla is not recouping some sort of cost. They're just putting it on the car up front Correct. versus charging you later to use the chargers. Right. And those sorts of models are absolutely being looked at by every other automaker right. also. Um, and at the same time, yeah, they do have some some local overuse issues they didn't expect. But if that's what an apartment dweller needs to buy an electric car in the first place, I'm not sure that's what we ought to be discouraging, but certainly it invites opportunity to create parameters to influence behavior, to create different pricing models for those it types of it people versus what the cross-country But what relationship will the owner-operator have with the utility? Can they get away from demand charges, for example? So the, the role of the utility is also ever-present in, in all the business models we're talking about, and I, th I think it's stuff that still well, needs and, to be Well, and regulatory, to, I mean, regulation also. I mean, the PUC has finally said, in the case of EV charging, only utilities can sell electricity, but if we're talking about electricity as a vehicle fuel, we will allow third parties to do it. That's how we have the charge points of the world. So this is a similar case of do we exempt electricity for vehicle fuel from some of these demand charges, or at least put them under a lower demand charge rate. So it's not up to the utilities entirely either. There's a whole bunch of different stakeholders that all have a responsibility and a role to play, but also need to come together and do it cooperatively. Where is the electric car really going to catch on first? China, for example, is putting a big push into it. They see the opportunity to go to the head of the class, so to speak, in automotive technology, because there's so much combustion experience and engineering know-how with the internal combustion engine on the part of Western and Japanese and Korean car companies. China sees EVs as the chance that everybody's starting from a level playing field. Is China gonna, going to take over this market? I mean, the, the numbers are just staggering. Growth is 8%, not year over year, month over month. I mean, if you look at the numbers coming For out, electric cars for in electric China. electric cars and excluding mini cars, mini hybrids, fleets and buses. So cars as we, we would are, define yeah, them. We're talking about cars the way we're looking at behind, yeah. behind not, us. Not inky dinky right, little right. ones, right. Uh, the numbers are staggering. Uh, the, you know, we think China will be one of the largest EV markets in the next five years. It's already almost on par in terms of net new sales uh, per year as the US. And you know the way that's being done is simply by with cold hard cash. I mean, the, you know, the rebates that, that buyers in the market get are sometimes over 50% of the MSRP of the vehicle. I was so, gonna say, can't you get, depending on which city you're in, up to $18,000 of a rebate? Absolutely, and, and on top of that, you get things like access to HOV lanes, parking, faster registration, which in a country like China, where it can take up to a year between the point you pay for the car and actually drive it, huge difference. I'm 
somewhat skeptical actually about China. I think a lot of the growth that you're talking about is driven by incentives. Now, a lot of the U.S. growth has been driven by incentives to a greater or lesser extent, but China inherently faces some greater challenges. A large number of the affluent people who can buy automobiles still live in multiple dwellings. And we're not talking townhouses, we're talking 18-story apartment buildings. That's a bigger infrastructural problem to recharge an electric car than even townhouses or condos. And of course, those people who live in, who have private houses in the U.S., not a problem. But, and, and it's worth pointing out, an electric car charging station is just like a clothes dryer. The wiring is essentially the same. Um, but in China, absent all of those incentives, I question how much market there is. And it's interesting to look that right now, China gives the same incentives to plug-in hybrids and to battery electric cars. There is no guarantee those plug-in hybrids are ever plugged in. That's correct. You get the incentives, they may still drive on gasoline. So I th I've come to be a little bit more of a China skeptic about natural demand for the reasons we see it in the U.S., whether it's they're simply cooler, better, nicer cars to drive, those people who are concerned with energy security, the green aspect, and of course the cost aspect as well, which are all different reasons that people buy plug-in cars. Talking about incentives, uh, as you guys know, uh, in the U.S., once any car company hits 200,000 sales of plug-ins or pure battery electrics, boom, out go the incentives. GM and Tesla, by the end of this year, will have eaten up about half of that. They'll, they'll be at the, the 100,000 mark. What happens to them, especially if the Model 3 catches on, especially if the, the Chevrolet Bolt catches on, what happens when they run out of incentives just as everybody else is coming to market and can get the $7,500 on a pure battery electric? Well, if we wanted to do one thing to move all of this forward tomorrow, we would overhaul that tax credit to begin with, <laughs> including taking that 200000 for each one and pooling them together so that those automakers who have been more seriously committed and building more cars can get more incentives, while those that are sitting back going, you know what, I'm not going to build a car for a while. I know my 200000 incentives are sitting there when I'm ready. <laughs> are gonna to have to sort of put up or shut up and get moving. So yeah, I mean, it becomes a concern. I think there is some expectation that those automakers will get some kind of extension, but we need to be looking more broadly at making that entire program more effective to begin with, making it a rebate, you know, doing a variety of other limitations that address compliance cars so that it actually makes vehicles more affordable for the people we're trying to make them affordable for, not necessarily subsidizing $120,000 Teslas by people in Iowa. Right. I'll say one thing about the Model 3. So Tesla wants to sell 500,000 vehicles a year by 2020. Let's say about half of it gets sold in the US, 250,000. We think the addressable market for the X and the S is about 40,000 each. Let's give them 100,000 vehicles a year by 2020. And the only sedan that costs over $35,000 that sells over 100,000 units in the US is the BMW Model 3. For the model, uh, for the 3 Series, the, 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 the Tesla Model 3, in order to help Tesla hit those, 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 those volumes, has to be in excess of 100,000 cars a year at $35,000 before the incentives. So the, the question was, was it going to be like a $35,000 car or $25,000 car after the California and federal tax rebates? It is a big deal. And to me, it, it casts a lot of doubt as to whether or not Tesla can hit the targets. That's a big hurdle to get over, yeah. to match the sales of the BMW 3 Series. John, what about hydrogen fuel cells? Every R&D VP that I talk to in this business says hydrogen's the future. Isn't that a threat to the battery electric? Um, not necessarily. Um, hydrogen is clearly at a, an earlier stage of development, but if the vehicles are essentially equal, 
Um, and yes, you can get for fifty or sixty thousand dollars a hydrogen vehicle at the moment if you live in certain very specific neighborhoods in Southern California that has three hundred miles of range, or you can get an eighty-five thousand dollar Tesla that has about the same. Um, there are a couple of aspects. Number one, and most important, is the infrastructure. It costs about two million dollars to build a hydrogen fueling station. Just one. Just one. Yeah. Um, California is putting up, I believe it's a hundred million dollars over a five-year period to get the first hundred stations out. It remains unclear that there is going to be a part of private enterprise that sees a way to construct the necessary national infrastructure for hydrogen fueling and make money on it. Um, electricity is very cheap, so and charging stations are relatively cheap, certainly compared to hydrogen fueling stations. It's really unclear that there will be a fueling infrastructure to fuel these cars. I personally have no doubt that over time automakers can get smaller, cheaper, better hydrogen fuel cells and better cheaper storage tanks and build cars that meet all the regs that in fact look and behave like regular vehicles but are fueled by hydrogen. It's just a question of where will the infrastructure come from and can you get the cost of hydrogen on a per mile basis even to equal that of gasoline, especially at $2 a gallon. Because if I have a choice of driving for X cents per mile on electricity or 3x cents per mile on gasoline, or 10x cents per mile on hydrogen, where am I going to go? Right. Well, and, and to me, EVs versus hydrogen is the wrong question to ask anyway. Hydrogen's entire sales pitch for 20 years has been long-range, fast-fueling. A Chevrolet Volt is both of those things today already. So if you have a Gen 2 Volt where 90% of your driving is already cheap, electric, and zero emission, I know that regulators care a lot about that last 10%. I think most consumers would rather suck it up and buy a couple gallons of gas that they can find anywhere and relatively cheap than to deal with the complexity of hydrogen. So I, I agree. I think the automakers can, can get all the technology stuff solved. I don't see the market for it. Yeah. Look, with that, we're going to have to wrap this off. Fascinating discussion. As I told you, we were going to run out of time before we ran out of things to talk about. But Salem Morrissey from uh, Bloomberg, Chelsea Sexton, John Volker from Green Car Reports, I want to thank you all for coming on the show today. It's been great. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. I hope you all enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. And thank you so much for tuning into AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner.